Hi, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Local Space is a registered provider created in 2006 through a partnership with London Borough of Newham and a group of housing professionals. Their houses are mainly in the east end of London, and they give homeless people a place to live. The rest of their homes are for key workers. With homelessness on the rise, the housing crisis is becoming ever more acute. Josie Parsons, Chief Executive of Local Space, speaks to me today about their role in providing settled accommodation for people on the homelessness register in London. She also undertakes some myth-busting about the kinds of families finding themselves in temporary accommodation. Uh, So my name is Josie Parsons. I'm the chief executive of an organisation called Local Space. Uh, We are a specialist registered provider of social housing and we're based in Stratford in East London. We work mostly in the east and northeastern part of of London, working in partnership with local authorities to help them with their homelessness crisis. So Local Space, you you provide homes to, to people on the homelessness register and you're described as, you know, this is described as temporary housing. Can you um, explain to me, because often people, I think when they hear temporary accommodation, they might be thinking of shelters, but that isn't really what you do. So can you tell me what what do you mean by temporary accommodation? Um, So temporary accommodation comes in lots of different forms, um, but the form of temporary accommodation that we offer um, refers to the nature of the uh, tenancy agreement that we have in place with our tenants, um, and that's an assured shorthold tenancy. Um, Our typical assured shorthold tenancy will be um, either one year or two years in duration, and when you come towards the end of that period, the the tenancy uh, arrangement just rolls forward. Um, So our average tenure length um, is around six years. And so that isn't temporary by anybody's normal definition of what temporary means. But there are other forms of temporary accommodation that are very much more short term in nature. um, And I would say that are less satisfactory for the family that live in them. So uh, our competition, if you want to call it that, um, might be another uh, private sector provider um, of accommodation. It might be a bed and breakfast uh, or a nightly let uh, accommodation. So uh, very different than, than what we offer and very variable. And that's a kind word to use in terms of quality quite often. So the big difference for our accommodation is that there is an actual tenancy agreement and we do abide by the terms of that tenancy agreement, of course. And also the quality of the homes that we provide is very good and very well received by the people who move into our homes. And indeed, the council uh, members um, in in the local authorities that we work with who come and have a look and see what it is that we offer. It's a very good standard. So when we say homelessness, we often have a picture in our head. Does that match reality? What, you know, can you describe the kinds of people who live in your homes? Um, So most of our homes are family accommodation. Um, So uh, our our particular client group are homeless families. But most people's perception of what homelessness means is that snapshot that the government talk about that's about people who are living on the streets. And that is a form of homelessness. It's very different than the client group that we deal with, though, um, because uh, those that kind of homelessness, there there are some specialist organisations who work with um, that form of homelessness. And there's a lot of wraparound sort of services and support that's needed to help 
those people make the transition. Um, but for us, it's families. And so what's critical here is that we're able to provide good quality accommodation for people who have children, because we know that children who grow up in insecure housing, they don't do well in life. So actually, it's really important that we try very hard indeed to make sure that, that families are able to be housed in much more satisfactory and secure, um, stable settled accommodation settled accommodation is really what we say we offer although it is classified as temporary you talked about the comparison of where these families would be you know in a and b or in a kind of nightly lead are, are we picturing that correctly is that a family living in a hotel room it can be. Um, it absolutely can be. There are also people who become homeless because they're being evicted from their uh, from their existing home. There are also families um, who are sofa surfing or living with relatives in very overcrowded conditions sometimes. And you'd be surprised how uh, sometimes people are actually living in their car. Um, and that's more common than you'd realise. So all sorts of, of, of situations. Um, but the council have, um, who are housing these people, who accept the duty to house these, these families, they have a number of options at their disposal, of which local space is one. And I would argue is a much better quality option than many of the alternatives that they may have access to. One of the things that I noticed that seems unique about local space is that you you don't build your accommodation. Um, so maybe can you talk about how you come to um, to to purchase and and what your how you work with the the market and and how you come to afford to buy these properties and what that mix is. Absolutely. So uh, we uh, purchase our properties from the open market by and large, although we do sometimes um, purchase directly from the developer. Um, we can we can do that quite routinely if, if the numbers work well. Um, we purchase properties on the open market. Sometimes they need quite a lot of work of refurbishment uh, doing to them. And uh, so other buyers that there might be out there in the market might not want to um, go through the process of doing that kind of refurbishment. Um, but it doesn't put us off. Uh, what's important is that we're able to find accommodation that we can afford to buy and refurbish and still make the numbers work within our financial model. We're funded um, in some instances with the assistance of right to buy receipts from the local authority where that's available um, and the balance and that won't be for the whole amount that would be a proportion of it the balance of it would be funded from our debt portfolio so we have um, funding uh, that's been made available to us from um, a, a group of funders that we, that we do business with and our funding model um, is is predicated on our specific business model um, and the reason that it looks slightly different than some others is that because this is intermediate housing so um, the rent level is pitched in between social housing rent levels and market rent levels so that's what intermediate rent means because our rents are mostly intermediate rent it means that we can support a higher debt burden than is typical um, in our sector um, it also means that um, our properties are valued for the purposes of supporting our loans on the basis of their market value not their uh, social housing value which is very significantly lower so that's also part of our unique model and what makes us a bit different than others and enables us to have done what we've done over the last Last three or four years which is to grow by uh, over um, 900 homes um, from a base of, of around uh, 2300 uh, three or four years ago so we're just just about 3000 homes now so um, 
it's it's not massive in the scheme of social housing, but if you look at it as a proportion of our growth rate, actually that's very substantial growth for a smaller organisation, and it's why we've been able to do that. You've been growing, you were saying you're primarily in the East End of London. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about that story? I mean, you, you've kind of started with Newham and and now are you seeking to expand, you know, into more areas of London or um, or into other areas of, of England? Or are you primarily seeing yourself as an East London organisation? I think at the moment, the board is quite clear that there's sufficient need in our existing areas of operation for those to remain our focus. Um, We work in partnership, though, with currently four uh, London local authorities, of which the London Borough of Newham is our largest, but there are three others as well. Um, We have properties in, um, I think it's nine boroughs in total. We do also have a portfolio of properties in Essex, uh, so outside of the M25 as well, um, although we're not adding to that portfolio currently. Um, uh, So, as I say, the board are are very clear that there's enough need in our existing areas of operation for that to keep us quite busy. And one of the good things about working in London from the point of view of, of what we're trying to do is that the values of properties haven't gone down in quite the same way that they might have done in other parts of London. And so this helps us to be able to support our uh, business model and our borrowing in an appropriate way with security. We're just going through um, a kind of news cycle about the budget, about the rising cost of, of living. And I'm wondering whether you can paint a picture of what you're seeing um, and what you're anticipating over the next 12 months. Well, uh, the uh, cost of living crisis is going to affect everybody, um, irrespective of your level of income. But when um, you're talking about a doubling in the cost of energy, Um, to heat your home and to heat hot water, that's obviously going to affect people on lower incomes much more than than anybody else, um, but as a proportion. And when you look at uh, the budget statement that was released yesterday, the the Chancellor did some really positive things to help people on lower incomes who are working, but there was nothing new in it at all to help people who are on benefits. And those are the people who have the least means in our society and the people who struggle the most financially. Now, there have been some other things, other initiatives that the government have released, which will help some of those people, for sure. But one of the things that's really difficult um, in social housing is that very often people who live in social housing will often not have access to even the cheapest forms of energy um, in the market, for example, uh, because they'll very often be on key meters. And those key meters, you know, where you go and charge it up at your local store, you don't get the cheapest rates for your uh, energy if you're using one of those key meters. And that's very often what our customers uh, need to do in order to heat their homes. And that's really, really tough. So one of the things that my board have done this year for the first time is to set aside a hardship fund um, with which we can um, assist uh, particular individual residents who are really struggling financially. Now, they might struggle for lots of reasons. Um, They may struggle because they're in the early stages of um, a benefit claim. And sometimes people have to wait quite some time before they get any money um, through the benefit system. Uh, Five week wait is not unusual. Well, what do you live on in the meantime? 
um, very, very tough for people. Uh, so our board were very clear they wanted us to do whatever we can to assist people who are in the most need in our uh, homes um, as much as we can. So we're still working through the details of how people will apply for that and how we will assess need one person against another um, but the board were very clear they wanted us to try to do whatever we could to make provision to help with that one of the other things that we're doing um, is we are doing a pilot um, of uh, improving the thermal efficiency of some typical archetypes of homes that we own um, it's a pilot scheme because it's using existing archetypes so not brand new properties not fancy properties either so there's sort of archetype of properties that exist all across London and um, we're what we're doing is we're piloting refurbishing those property, properties to an EPCA or higher standard. The idea being that if we can do that and it not be ridiculously expensive to do, the impact that that would have on the person living in the home is that it will so much reduce the costs of uh, heating their home um, to the extent that they may even only have to pay to heat hot water and not have to pay for heating at all. So uh, we're, we're piloting this to see what it looks like in terms of cost, to see what it looks like in terms of the technology that's available, uh, and indeed the expertise to fit that technology as well, of course. Um, and then what we will do with that is assess uh, once we once we completed the pilot, we will assess the feasibility of being able to do that kind of refurbishment work in a home that has a family already living in it. So do what we can over the next few years to improve the thermal efficiency and therefore the cost of running the homes that uh, that our tenants uh, reside in, uh, because that's the best thing that we can possibly do to help them be able to afford to run their homes in the longer term with in a situation where energy costs in particular are rising and of course there are lots of other kinds of costs that are also rising as a consequence of that um, so uh, that's that's the thing that we think will make the most difference uh, to uh, to people's uh, individual household finances to help them in the longer term and it has an added benefit of uh, increased climate resilience as well. So yes. presumably extending the longevity of your stock. So might actually um, tick some other boxes at the same time. Yes. You mentioned your your competition uh, really being about quality. And I think, you know, this idea of um, of energy efficiency is one example of where you can, you know, make a big difference in terms of your um, quality. But I know... Um, there was a, a headline in Inside Housing today about uh, one in five temporary um, housing uh, are unfit for living in or actually hazardous. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, you know, what do you want to see in terms of policy? I mean, do we need more of a watchdog approach? Do these, uh, does the kind of use of the private system need to to change in some ways? Or, or what are some kind of, um, you know, initiatives that you would like to see to to tackle uh, to a certain extent a rogue uh, landlord approach to accommodation. Um, so there have been some existing schemes that have worked quite well in some local authority areas in the past where they've had licensing arrangements in place for um, houses in multiple occupation HMOs. So that's where you rent a room in a in a larger. Uh, home with like shared uh, kitchen facilities and shared bathroom facilities. Um, so some of those sorts of schemes have worked quite well in uh, making sure that landlords um, do conversion work that's safe um, and that they provide um, appropriate amounts of space for the number of um, 
mini homes that are within that one building. So there, there are some, um, some, some schemes that have worked um, in the past. I think what I'd like to see, though, um, is uh, something that um, some kind of regulatory approach, perhaps, that makes sure that private rented accommodation, um, there, that there is a standard that's applied. So there is already existing legislation that means that if you're a landlord, then you are obliged to do gas safety checks if you've got gas appliances um, in, uh, in a home that you're renting out to tenants. Uh, and that's fine. That's a safety matter. And that's really important. But actually, that doesn't deal with some of the other sorts of really unpleasant um, uh, circumstances and, and conditions that some people have to live in where their landlord doesn't um, doesn't apply due care and attention to the maintenance of, of you know of the property as a whole now some landlords are really brilliant at this and do this very well and and feel that it's very important that they do it because it's uh, maintaining the value of their asset but there are also landlords out there who don't do that um, the government are talking about uh, apply and the application of what's called the decent home standard um, into the private sector. Um, it will be interesting to see how that discussion unfolds over a period of time. The new Minister for Housing, Michael Gove, um, has actually tackled this head on in the first instance. So it'll be interesting to see if actually things change um, in that regard. Um, because one of the things that we notice in, in social housing is that we are held to quite a high standard in terms of regulation. Um, and uh, But there isn't any regulation nationwide in the private rented sector at all, apart from the requirement to um, service a gas boiler uh, on on an annual basis, that's it. There's there's really not anything um, much else at all. So it would be really good if there were some sort of sort of standards. It'll also be very interesting to see what unfolds in the sort of carbon neutrality um, discussions that are going on around what what the requirement is to uh, improve the um, existing homes that there are. Um, in in our society because the majority of homes that are going to be here in a hundred years time have already been built so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like in the round in, in society as a whole it's always very clear to us in social housing what the requirements will be for us or what we think that is still a moving target but what we think that's going to look like and we can make movements towards that quite routinely but it would be interesting to see what that ends up looking like for the society as a whole, including homeowners, but also including people who uh, rent out uh, property in the private sector. So when you discuss this, um, the kind of ideas of, of safety checks or standards that you would like to see, what is it that you're seeing in those um, private homes? What are some examples of, of poor repair or hazards that people are encountering in these rentals? Um, so, the sorts of things that, that you sometimes see um, will be similar to some of those sorts of things that have been very uh, highly publicised on ITV recently in terms of damp and mould. Obviously, the homes that were being shown on that uh, ITV report were all social housing homes uh, operated and owned by social housing providers. But there are plenty of private rented homes that have similar kinds of conditions in them. So they might have damp and mould, they might have wiring that's uh, not fixed down properly, um, they might have flooring that is inadequate, that has, um, that is, has been damaged by water uh, ingress, um, they may have um, ceilings that have fallen down because there's been a leak in a, in a room above, um, all of those sorts of things that were shown on that report will also exist in the private sector. Um, 
and there's also uh, there are also some homes that are rented in a private sector that are so tiny um, that it really shouldn't be appropriate for a family to be located in them. Uh, we have space standards we have to meet. Uh, so uh, and and the and the council do assess the need, but people who are renting in the private sector aren't going through the council. They're doing it off their own back. So and they are accepting conditions that they really that really are inadequate because they have nowhere else to go and they can't afford to be too choosy. But that shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't be the standard. And there are incidences where the council is effectively renting these lower standard properties or or housing benefit is being used to pay for these um so it is kind of a state sponsored space in a way although it's not abiding by the same regulations as social housing so i wouldn't say it's state sponsored exactly but it certainly is being funded through the benefit system at least in part for sure Um, but there isn't a requirement to assess the standard before housing benefit is paid it's just to assess the fact that somebody is making those payments and they don't have the income to support it that that's the way the assessment is done Um, so yeah um, you do hear stories about the some of the homes that people have come from when they come into our homes and and the stories are quite um quite sad really well, they make me sad anyway. When I think about families, children living in those, in those, some of those kind of environments, that makes me extremely sad. I think the the uh, these stories on ITV you mentioned around social housing repairs. I mean, they they have kind of damaged the reputation of social housing. But I mm-hmm. think again, you know, what would be your your I guess um, reaction to that because I think you know as you're saying they are actually held to these standards and they they can be kind of called up to to yes to fix this but you know I think getting the wrong impression about social housing uh, well I think that you're you're quite right Uh, seeing things like that um, and seeing the conditions that some people have been living in for some time um, it's it's awful and it shouldn't have happened Um, and you're right, social housing organisations are held to account for that. So uh, if somebody makes a complaint and the complaint isn't properly handled, we have an ombudsman service who can direct the social housing organisation to act either to provide compensation or indeed to act to deal with a uh, long-standing um, issue. Damp and mould happens in housing. What's important is that you recognise and identify when it happens and then deal with it and have mechanisms in place for dealing with it. And I think what... Um, what's been shown by those reports more than anything else um, and this has been talked about in the context of the Grenfell disaster as well is that uh, sometimes um, especially in larger organisations it's harder to listen um, to the voice of a resident um, who has a problem Um, and I think that that's that's the thing that we we should all take away from those reports it's really important that if somebody is telling you that there's a problem you need to listen to that and go and have a look and make your own assessment and then deal with the problem properly and appropriately and be respectful that that person has bothered to actually tell you that something isn't right. Um, they shouldn't have to be contacting you 10, 12, 14 times over the course of months um, because things, things uh, aren't being sorted out. I think the other thing that I've taken away from some of those reports is that sometimes you have individual 
issues that arise that might cause um, water ingress or something like that. Uh, and the individual thing is fixed, but then something happens again. Where you've got a pattern of things that keep on happening over a period of time, it's not one thing that's not been fixed, but it but you might say that if there's a pattern that emerges, you need to you need to have mechanisms that can recognize that and then go to really the source of the problem rather than just a sticking plaster kind of approach to it. Because the, the fourth or fifth time your ceiling has fallen down in your home, you're going to be really fed up about that. I know I would be. We've got a, a government that's been talking about pushing supply for some time, supply of all homes, 300,000 you know, targets for homes and home building. Um, but we seem to have this acute rising problem of, of homelessness and hidden homelessness, you know, that kind of uncounted number as well. Um, so why isn't the supply fixing the problem? Uh, well, uh, the, the government's the government's policy has has very much been about supporting uh, home ownership as being the primary um, primary supply. It's not that they haven't supported any affordable housing, but the proportions have been quite low. Um, and the sector has tried really hard to work within the boundaries of the grant arrangements and the other funding arrangements that do exist to improve the supply of, of social housing. Um, there have been issues around the supply of land and the cost of land. Um, and then there's the whole section 106 uh, arrangements and um, one of the things that's, that certainly sometimes happens outside of London, and I imagine it will do in, in London as well, is that you find that there are uh, Section 106 developments that include social housing and social housing providers end up in competition and bidding them up. That can't be a good use of public money. It just can't be. Um, so we seem to have been working against ourselves as a nation um, in this and recognising, really, really recognising that affordable housing. What does affordable housing actually mean? Affordable to who? Um, being really clear about that. And in reality, affordable housing doesn't mean one size fits all. It, there is a spectrum. There are, there are a number of different things that, that are affordable housing, depending on who you're targeting at. But there is this group of, of, of people for whom affordable rent or social rent, uh, or whatever you want to call it, London affordable rent, that's the thing that's really, really necessary. And the supply of affordable rented housing has just been completely inadequate for many, many years. Um, we do the best that we can with the resources that we have as a sector, but there's not enough to go around. Um, and it's it's especially acute in London and the southeast because land prices are so high here. Is that one of the reasons to take an approach where you're kind of purchasing existing as opposed to building is to avoid that that land um, issue? It is one of the things, but actually the reason why we've opted for our purchase and repair model uh, is so that we can deliver things rapidly. Because when you, so if I was to uh, to agree um, a, a new build uh, proposition tomorrow, it would probably take two, two and a half years to actually uh, get out of the ground and, and be available for rent. Whereas I can do a purchase and repair and turn it around. Well, our aim is to turn things around within 16 weeks. We actually do a bit better than that, actually. Uh, in our model, but that's what we aim for. So uh, we can actually provide the accommodation much more uh, 
rapidly. Um, there are some counter arguments around value for money in that. And the reason that our model works the way that it does is because our rents are slightly higher, but they are still affordable rents. They are still within the boundaries of what's affordable in the benefits um, regime, which is the normal benchmark that is used to consider whether something is affordable or not. Who's your competition when you're trying to acquire property? Does it tend to be other private landlords? Um, it could be another private landlord, although we actually buy um, homes quite often from uh, buy-to-let landlords who are moving out of the business for one reason or another. Um, so, yes, it might be. Um, but it might be an individual householder um, as well. Um, it depends on, on the accommodation. When we're buying off the shelf um, from a, a developer, which is something that we really like to do if we can, because we can turn those around really quickly within two or three weeks, which is great. Um, and also the quality is often pretty good um, already with those. So we don't have to do as much work in them. Still have to do the landlord safety stuff, of course, but we don't have to do lots of other refurbishment um, work. And that's often for circumstances where it's a small developer and, and maybe they've got some cash flow difficulties. And by selling, you know, four or five properties in one go to us, um, they actually get an injection of cash flow, which is really helpful for them to continue and to complete a development that's already underway. Um, so, you know, we, we're very happy to do that um, if the numbers work. Um, we've, we've got an appraisal model, of course, that we um, that we use to, to look at what's uh, what's on offer, um, and it's great when we can we, when we can do that, or if we can um, maybe buy both uh, upstairs and downstairs flats in a converted house. Great if we can buy all of it because we have um, more control over the communal areas then, and, and the um, you know safety of those and, and, and so forth as well. Great, uh, we really like it if we can do that. So, in so much better if we can buy the freehold too, because <laughs> that's it, that's the best of all alternatives. Um, but we 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 have limits within which we can acquire. So, when we're not acquiring at the at the top of the market, um, and we're not acquiring in the top um, highest market areas in the areas that we that we work in. So, there are some areas in East London that are unaffordable to us. Hackney is one of them. Uh, Stratford is another actually, which is where our office is. Uh, but Stratford, the, the property prices have just gone through the roof because of the um, all of the development on the Olympic Park as the Olympic legacy. Uh, lovely properties, really nice, some of them. Uh, they're just not affordable for us. So you're primarily then limited to buying in Newham. Are you trying to house people within the borough that they're uh, on which they're on the um, homelessness register? Or are you also picking up from outside of there? Uh, well, different local authorities have different guidelines as far as that is concerned. There are some local authorities that will only house people uh, from their uh, registers within the borough. Um, in London, that tends to be less the case than, than perhaps outside of London. Um, so we uh, we acquire properties in the London Borough of Newham, in uh, Walther Forest, in Redbridge, in Barking and Dagenham, in Havering. Um, those five six boroughs sometimes south of the river too although the management when you have to cross the river can be slightly more tricky so probably less desirable for us um so yeah um but not all areas even within those boroughs are affordable for us particularly um because some areas uh, like stratford which is in the london borough of newham um just has this particular uh pattern in terms of, of cost and hackney has just just become mad um, in the last few years uh, and really hard to afford. In fact, we're selling property in um, Hackney and acquiring more for the money in boroughs immediately around the London Borough of Hackney um, to help with the reprovision um, there. So it's, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a challenge for us. But I said that we've, we've come to, we've been doing um, quite a significant development 
program over the last three or four years, we're coming towards the end of that rapid development. There's still going to be some development looking forward, but it's going to be in smaller numbers because we're at the limit of our capacity just now. And our focus is on investing in our existing homes and doing all the works around carbon neutrality and improving EPC values and and those sorts of things, as well as, of course, the usual decent homes work and normal um, cyclical um, investment that you have to do in any uh, property that you own. Um, So that's where our focus is is really uh, looking forward. So it feels as though the need for this accommodation is only going to to grow. I mean, you talk about the rising prices in Hackney. There are a lot of people, uh, families living in in those boroughs now who you know, are not in a secured tenancy or are not, you know, are renting and at the the mercy of eviction or, or upcoming problems. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, what what do you see as, um, as a, a, a stronger safety net that, you know, if you could kind of wave a magic wand, what were some, some uh, major shifts or moves that you think could kind of prevent families from, becoming homeless? I'm not sure that there is a um, magic bullet. Um, I wish I could think of one um, and invent one, because if I could think of one, I'd be talking to government about that. Um, But I think it is quite clear that homelessness is not going away and the pressure on people's household budgets um, isn't going uh, anywhere other than upward um, in the next year or two, certainly. Um, So I think what needs to happen um, is to some extent, what is already happening, which is that local authorities use all of the tools at their disposal, um, including where they've got land available to be built on, um, where they've got um, other ways in which they can uh, can assist in, in reprovision on, on areas that they have responsibility or accountability for. So regeneration sometimes results in increased numbers of housing on a particular site. For example, and there are some some schemes in our area of um, operation where regeneration is going to be happening over the next few years. That's not a fast thing to do, though. Um, It takes a long time to do it um, because you've got people who already live in those homes. And so if you are knocking down those homes, you have to um, there's a sort of a piecemeal approach that you have to move people um, and then reprovide and move them back. And it's it's complicated and it takes quite some time, uh, even if people vote for it and, and want it to happen. Um, it's, it's not an easy thing. Um, the pressure in, in London has never been more acute and isn't likely to get any easier, um, I wouldn't say. Um, so I think what I would like to see is... Uh, it is some recognition and improvement in in uh, recognition of the value of a home for a family um, and uh, whatever can be done to improve the quality of homes that are made available to families for that to be the absolute um, sort of sort of priority um, and then appropriate support for people who are on low income so that they are able to afford homes in a, in a reasonable space because it is certainly the case that there are plenty of people who work in London but who can't afford to live in London because their um, their wages uh, are not sufficient to support living in uh, in a London borough and so that you know there are people who, who live a long way away from where they work which is fine and dandy but uh, puts pressure on other systems doesn't it of course 
uh, as well. So uh, I, I'd like to see a situation where appropriate support is provided to help people who are on lower incomes. But the, um, the benefit reforms that have happened in the last five or six years have really made that extremely difficult for people who are living with the support of benefits. And I guess, is there some myth busting we need to do about that situation? These aren't people who can leave London. They are working in London. You know, they, these aren't people who are usually they are are actually working in full time employment, but can't afford um, where they're living. So do, do you think there's still um, some residual myths about the kind of profile of homelessness in, in London? There, it, there are certainly myths about the profile of homelessness. There are also, uh, on top of that, myths about um, who people are that live in social housing and what that means about a person um, who is eligible for social housing. There's a stigma that is still very prevalent um, uh, and attached to people who live in, in social housing uh, and people who claim benefits for that matter too. Um, there are plenty of people who don't claim full benefits, but who claim top-up benefits. Well, why would you be eligible for top-up benefits? It's because you don't earn very much um, and not everybody has the capacity to earn um, the highest salaries and don't forget median income levels medium household income levels are something like twenty-eight thousand pounds a year at the moment there are lots of people who earn a lot less than that so if you're on a minimum wage you're going to earn significantly less than that i think minimum wage works out around about twenty thousand pounds a year um, in terms of, of, of pay for a sort of 40 hour week um, if you're if you're only at that level uh, you're probably going to be eligible for top-up benefits um, to help you to afford to live. And there are plenty of people who are full-time working, um, not even part-time working, who, who, who struggle as well. So people on low, low incomes who work in our core services, like the NHS, for example. People, lots of people who work in the NHS don't, work, don't earn high salaries and find it hard to afford to rent um, in the private sector. Um, so there's there's a sort of, there's an issue around values here, around, around what, what it means to have a home that you can afford, genuinely afford to live in and, uh, and afford a reasonable standard of living. I'm not talking about a standard of living that enables you to have three foreign holidays a year or, or anything like that, but that enables you to pay your bills, that enables you to eat uh, a reasonable diet and provide school uniforms for your kids um, and shoes for them in the winter and stuff like that. So just normal things that everybody should be able to reasonably um, expect to afford to to provide for their family and there are many families in our nation and in London where I work who really struggle with those basics of life. Well I want to thank you for for sharing these they're difficult stories and also for really sharing this kind of business model that has some hope really for for providing um, some much needed housing in a in a in a gap um, that seems to be widening so um, so thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much for inviting me it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.